Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, War and Peace, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the constantly changing security situation in the world and the need for stronger institutions for maintaining global peace and justice. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today, we're speaking with Camilla Guldal Cooper. She's an associate professor at the Norwegian Defense Command and Staff College. Her book is NATO Rules of Engagement on ROE, Self-Defense, and the Use of Force During Armed Conflict. Camilla, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So, First of all, tell us, when can military forces use force during armed conflict and what laws apply here? During armed conflict, military forces can use force in two general circumstances. First of all, they can use force against lawful targets. And by that means it can be persons and it can be objects. And they can do this if it's in accordance with the mission and the plans for the operations. So when military forces are employed, to they employ to achieve certain goal. And for instance, to defend a territory or intervene in a humanitarian crisis or other scenarios. And the force used must then be tailored for this purpose. So when military use force, usually time and resources are, are limited. So the force is aimed at where it has the most effective impact. And in addition to this, uh, military forces can, of course, always defend themselves if they are attacked. So those are two circumstances that military forces usually use force. And during armed conflict, the most use of force is regulated by the law of armed conflict. And this is also known as international humanitarian law or the laws of war, the pretty much synonyms. And this regulates the use of force, but with both offence and defence. So it's intended to cover pretty much everything with regards to the use of force. But in a situation where it doesn't cover it and there's a threat, then of course self-defense will also apply. And so who exactly is a lawful target? Um, reading through this, it's it's not quite clear cut. Um, you know, there are civilians, there are combatants, uh, but then there are people in between as well. Yeah, so the main category of persons who are lawful targets are combatants, which is basically the military forces fighting on behalf of the parties to the conflict, so soldiers, basically. And these are actually lawful targets regardless of what they're doing at the time. So even if they're eating, having a break, or fighting, or moving in transportation, they're lawful targets regardless. So they will, however, cease to be a lawful target if they're wounded. So if they're sick or captured or injured, uh, or if they are surrendering, then it's what we call order combat. So they will not be lawful targets anymore. And if they are captured, they're actually entitled to what you probably heard of, which is called a prisoner of war status, which means they should be treated really well and also, uh, importantly, released at the end of the conflict. So that's the first category of lawful targets, combatants or soldiers. And then civilians are basically all those who are not combatants. And it's prohibited to direct attacks against civilians. They should be protected. And they even a rule saying that the parties to the conflict are required to take all feasible precautions to protect them from the effects of the fighting. So not just not targeting them, but even the effects 
if they're attacking a local target, the effects on civilians. And then especially it is uh, prohibited to carry out attacks which they are expected to cause excessive civilian losses or damage to civilian objects. And this is what you call the proportionality rule. So if they're causing, there's a relativity between the uh, military advantage you expect them to achieve and the civilian losses. However, civilians actually lose this protection if they choose to take direct part in hostilities. And it is a variety of activities. It's everything from actual fighting to maybe planning, ordering operations to more supporting tasks like transporting weapons or collecting information about the opponent or giving military training. A lot of these activities are similar to what the military forces were doing. And this rule can be quite difficult to apply in practice because usually the civilians, will they won't be wearing uniforms. So it's very hard to know if they are actually in the category of persons who are local targets or if they are still protected civilians. So you have to focus on what they're doing and who they're operating with and if, in order to know if they're local targets. Sometimes this will require a lot of situational awareness and knowledge of the like techniques and tactics and procedures of the opposing forces and the situation, the culture, and in order to know what is a harmful or a hostile activity and what is actually an innocent activity. In some places, just carrying a weapon would be considered hostile. In other areas, everyone carries a weapon, so that's not enough to say that someone's a hostile. And also, these civilians will get the protection back if they, once they stop the participation. And this has also created a lot of discussion, especially if they do this on a regular basis. It's something called the farmer by day and fighter by night discussion. So if someone's always fighting in the night and always doing peaceful activities during the day, then should they have protection during the day and not during the night? Or how is this going to work? So what states have been doing uh, over the last, well, for, for years has been to say, well, if you're doing this on such a regular basis, then usually you are actually even connected to an organized armed group and then you will lose the protection as long as you're still carrying out in these activities uh, and the part of this group. And then we're talking potentially like months or years. And the main difference between the combatants and these other people who are lawful targets, this in-between kind of protected persons and the lawful targets, are that the combatants have a right to participate directly in hostilities. They have a right to fight. They're doing it on behalf of the state. And because of this, even if they are killing someone, they're immune from criminal prosecution as long as they acted in accordance with the law on conflict. By contrast, a civilian who is choosing to directly participate in hostilities who can actually be prosecuted for having killed a soldier. And this kind of sounds a bit strange because it's an imbalanced system, but the rules are intended to protect, among others, the civilians. And this becomes really difficult if the civilians do not stay out of the fighting. So if they want to participate, they need to join the military forces, wear uniforms so that the distinction between those who fight and those who are protected is clearer. So that's why the people in the, this kind of in-between category, as you mentioned, have completely different rights than the military. And I feel like this is where it gets very interesting and also very complicated because we're seeing this sort of gray area now in Ukraine. But I've also seen some forces 
use this as a justification for killing civilians. Um, the case that I'm thinking of is uh, the most recent one when Shireen Abu Akleh uh, was killed. Uh, she's a Palestinian American journalist. An Israeli army spokesperson said that she and her colleagues were, quote, armed with cameras. That's not a way that someone can be armed uh, with a camera, but I I wonder if there is some sort of justification there or if it's, you know, pretty clear cut that when you're talking about a civilian being armed, that has to mean with some sort of weapon. Well, it's difficult to comment on concrete cases, but it's it's certainly not as clear cut that you have to be armed with weapons. Because if you're, for instance, doing information gathering in order to find the position of troops and then forward this information to armed groups to then use this to attack the forces, you have been actually taking direct part in hostilities and you become a lawful target. The challenge is often knowing, is that what they're doing? So in order to get that from one situation, you either need to know that this one person, recognize the person and know that this person's been doing this for a long time, so you know exactly who they are and what they're doing, or it needs to be a very clear situation. So if you see someone on the phone and they're watching an area and been doing that for a long time, and you can tell that every time someone walks close, they will get shot at from a very long distance, which is too far to be able to shoot without having the person on the phone direct in the fight. So you will have to know a lot more about the situation. So it is difficult to say whether the Israeli argument is, is correct. It is worth mentioning that journalists do have like particular mention in the law on conflict because they do an incredibly important job in very difficult situations. And that the fact that they are there, even though you know they, they usually go to areas where civilians wouldn't usually want to go and they're, they're seeking information, which is going to be used for journalism for information and news rather than for intelligence sharing so they have like specific rules saying well journalists need to be respected even though they are placing themselves in harm's way so it's but you're right this is a difficult rule and it's been one of those that's been um really challenging to apply uh it was most um much used in afghanistan as well and the same with iraq where there's a lot of people who are not wearing uniforms need to find clear examples of what's within this concept and what's going to be on the outside. Is digging at the side of the road in the middle of the night going to be something you're going to automatically say is a hostile act? Well, if you know that it's 50 degrees during the day and 30 during the night, you understand that the farmers are going to do the irrigation work night, not during the day. But you need to know this, otherwise you're going to think that everyone digging at the side of the road is emplacing an IED. Why? Otherwise, why would they do it in the night? So it does require a lot of context, understanding, and of course, in order to get that, you need to have training, information, and understanding of both the rules and where you're operating. That was something that I would talk to people in the Air Force about um, when I used to report on drones. Uh, they would talk about surveying an area and analyzing what a civilian was doing. If they were using a shovel, what were they using those tools for? And all of that, as you said, is kind of part of uh, this information gathering to figure out if that person is just being a civilian or if they are doing some kind of work for the war effort. 
Yeah, it doesn't really require you to um, both just just collect information, but also have the cultural and contextual understanding to to use that information in a good way to understand why, why you see people with troubles by the side of the road. So that's good information. But do you know why people have a tendency to be by the side of the road with trouble? So you have to really understand understand the uh, culture and the area, and as well as understanding how your opposing forces operate. That's a good point. I never thought of that part of that cultural bit that could be so important to understanding how people on the ground are operating. Um, Speaking of kind of thinking from the military personnel's point of view, um, what are the most important questions that military personnel have to ask themselves when they're carrying out orders? This will depend a bit on the type of order that's given, especially how concrete it is. Because an order can mean everything from attack this building now to take control over this area and protect or protect this village from attack in the way you seem so, uh, best suited. So there's less room for questions when the order is very clear and concrete and tactical. But military forces, first of all, have a duty to follow orders. Uh, it's like this is actually fundamental to the principle of being a combatant and having combatant immunity, which I mentioned, because they're acting on behalf of the state. They're not carrying out their personal interests or personal decisions. So they are following orders and therefore they get combatant immunity. But if the soldiers know that the order is unlawful or they should know because of its like manifestly unlawful nature, they're required not to follow it. So that's perhaps the most important question you need to ask yourself, is this a lawful order? But most orders are lawful. So in reality and in practice, it's more a question of how much room do they have to decide how to carry out the order? So if they have some consideration to making themselves, then they first need to make sure that if they're using force especially, that they're directing this at a lawful target. And they need to assess the impact this operation will have on the civilians and whether this can impact them, if it's a negative impact, if this can be reduced. And if the expected incidental harm is considered to comply with the proportionality rule, then they can carry out the attack. If not, they need to find another way to carry out the attack or not carry it out. But these legal considerations are not the only important questions they must ask themselves. They also have to make sure that they comply with the rules of engagement for the operation, that they actually have the authority to carry out the attack. And of course, that the attack support or the action support the plan for the operation. So kind of digging into this a bit more, what do the NATO use of force concepts authorize? And I guess before we get into that, just exactly what are the NATO, are these rules different outside of NATO? Well, the... um, in order to control the use of force and to make sure that the use of force and other actions in military operations comply with like political and the legal framework for an operation, it's common to develop what is known as rules of engagement. So these are tailored to the to the concrete situations and the needs and restraints for each operation. So the ROE will then define the circumstances and the conditions, the degrees, and also the manner for the use of force and particular to the NATO system, and that it's also regulating other behaviour or actions which may be construed as provocative, like simulating an attack or carrying out psychological operations or 
things like this, which is not using force and still can have a negative impact on the operation if it's used in the wrong way. So basically, if the military forces want to use force or other provocative measures and they don't have an ROE to do it, then they're not authorized to do it. So they always need to look to the ROE for having the ROE authorization to act. There is an important exception here, and that's self-defense, because states apply self-defense rules slightly differently, and NATO is a multinational operation or organization. They, NATO ROE does not regulate the use of force in self-defense. It just confirms that this right continues to apply even if you have the ROEs. What NATO ROE deregulate is the use of force to support the operation. So, for instance, if weapons are brought into the conflict area by sea, which ships can be boarded to be controlled, how much force can they use to do so if the people on the ship resists, who can be detained, can deadly force be used if this is necessary. So this type of ROE focus on the use of force to achieve designated tasks. So not the use of force for the purpose of defeating the enemy, but to achieve certain tasks that have been ordered to carry out. And then the question is, can they use force? And if so, how much? So another category is attack ROE. This is attack ROEs where the purpose is to use force, where the decision has been made that we need to use force in order to achieve certain purpose. So this can be directed at persons or objects. And they, of course, have to be lawful targets in accordance with the law on conflict. So there's are two categories of the attack ROEs. The first is those who are limited to persons who are involved in hostile activities or, for instance, who are intending to attack NATO forces. Or you can have an attack on persons who are lawful targets regardless of what they're doing at the time. And if this wider category is used, this last one, the ROEs will set out who the opposing forces are. So basically they will who is actually declared hostile in this situation. Because there may be a situation where we have several non-friendlies, but they're not necessarily your enemy. So this requires, of course, the opponent to be possible to clearly identify. For instance, if they are members of the armed forces of another state wearing uniform and therefore easy to identify. And then similarly, you can have attack on objects which are lawful targets. It could be that they're any objects in the entire area. It could be limited to certain areas or those which are being used, for instance, to support operations that are a threat to the population or anything which is then connected back to the, the mandate or the purpose of the operation. So this will all depend on the situation and the degree of control that the commander and also the political level wants to have. Because the ROE are ultimately control tools. They set parameters, but it also enables control. And finally, one of the issues which I looked at in my book is situations where NATO forces are attacked and want to return fire. This is usually called self-defense because people are defending themselves. But from a legal point of view, this is a bit strange because all the use of force against enemy forces is actually regulated by the law of conflict, even if it's defensive force. So true self-defense in kind of the the legal sense will be primarily relevant if the person attacking is not actually a lawful target, but for instance, someone who's really angry, just an angry civilian who is furious because you drove through his crops or damaged a house or something like this. 
So then self-defense is relevant. Because this use of force dealing with threats who are imminent or actually attacking you, this is so close to self-defense. The NATO ROE doctrine, which existed when I wrote my book, didn't have any ROEs on this. Also, the doctrine had a different approach on the way the ROE should be used than what NATO has practiced since this doctrine was written, which meant that this use of force category didn't actually need to be included when it was written. But this has now been updated. The doctrine has been since updated since I wrote my book. Um, I was very privileged to be allowed to help with this update. And in the current version of the RE doctrine, the ability to use force in this kind of situation is now confirmed in the RE. And I think this is a very important development because it makes it clearer for the soldiers when they're allowed to use force. And you asked if there's any difference between NATO and other systems, and there certainly is. There's many areas where NATO RE is slightly, slightly different than, for instance, the US ROEs, which is the most known, or the UN RE for that sake. Uh, and this is that the NATO ROE, first of all, uh, does not regulate self-defense. Because, for instance, in the US, it's one nation, so one state, one approach, or more uniform approach to self-defense. Whilst in a multinational context, it wasn't possible to come with agreement on self-defense. That's why self-defense has been taken out. So that's one thing. And the other one is that the NATO ROE doesn't just regulate the use of force, but also... The other provocative measures is a more comprehensive regulation and control tool. And then finally, the, the assertion in the ROE saying that if you haven't got an ROE and it's not self-defense, then you can't do it. This is also quite particular to NATO. And it's an important part of this control element and the ability, not just the commander, but also the political level who's ultimately responsible for the use of force, that when they approve of the ROEs, and they also have the ability to set the parameters for when force may be used. So there was one other topic I wanted to delve into a little bit, and I know that your article doesn't dig into this, but I did notice several citations throughout your work, um, and that's on the use of drone strikes. Uh, can you talk at all about how the NATO rules of engagement uh, have been applied in this context? The NATO rules of engagement, like, like actually the rules you can find in the law of conflict, are quite generic. So they talk about where you can operate, who's the lawful targets, how much force you can use, and also standards required to identify someone or something as a lawful target. So this means that it doesn't really matter if an attack is carried out by a person on the ground, a pilot in a fighter aircraft, or a person operating a drone. The requirements and the standards are the same, which means that the drone strikes also have to comply with all the use of force rules. So the use of drones just raise some unique challenges, uh, but also raises opportunities. So with all other technology which has been invested and developed, it's used because it's supposed to be an improvement for the operation. So drones can be used to collect information which would be hard to get otherwise. They can stay longer in a place than people would be able to because of the risk is lower with a drone than people. They can even go around buildings, look from different perspectives. And they can keep an eye on a building for a longer period to make sure that there are no civilians in the area when it's attacked. Small drones can 
get small ammunitions close to the target so it's easier to hit the target and the impact on the surrounding area is more limited than you if you're using larger ammunitions from a longer distance. So there's many benefits to using drones. But drones also have we have seen lots of challenges as well with the use of drones. Because one thing is technical problems, but you can have that with other weapons as well, or weapon systems. But it's also a challenge that the use of drones can give the wrong impression of a situation. So it could be because the image quality is too low or because the operator simply doesn't get enough information to fully understand the situation it's looking at. But this is not so much a problems with the lack of rules or bad rules, but more a user error. But of course, if there is extensive problems in this area, as with any other areas, first focus will be on training. But if that doesn't solve it, the it is possible to use the ROEs to control better control such operations. So you could have ROE saying that the use of drones require more information before you can attack, or more people need to be involved, or people with a higher rank need to be involved, or you can say that it's only permitted to use in certain circumstances. So in that way, it can be a useful control tool to avoid uh, undesirable situations. That's Camilla Gouldal Cooper. She has written NATO Rules of Engagement on ROE, Self-Defense, and the Use of Force during armed conflict. Camilla, thanks again. Thank you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.